Welcome to Interesting Times. I'm Joe Streckert. This is an independent, listener-supported podcast. To support the show, go to interestingtimespodcast.com. This week's episode is something slightly new. This is our first three-parter. This is a three-part series about Sudan under the Mahdi at the end of the 1800s, and all of the war, chaos, and general horribleness that that entailed. This is a story of a religious state that rebelled from its colonial masters, made bloody war upon a neighboring country, and was then mercilessly crushed. Between 1885 and 1899, over 5 million people will die as a result of war and starvation. And this whole story of Sudan under the Mahdi is a fascinating and terrible look at all of the horrors wrought by colonialism, by nationalism, by war, and by religion. It is not a particularly nice story, but it is an interesting one. However, I don't think anyone in this narrative comes away looking at all good or heroic, so it's kind of a big old downer. I mean, the only one in the story who really comes off looking okay are probably the Ethiopians. Uh, we'll get to them next week. But to begin, in 1880, Sudan was not being governed well. Uh, at the end of the 1800s, the Ottoman Empire allowed Egypt a certain amount of autonomy, and Egypt, in turn, ruled Sudan as a kind of client state, or subordinate province, and they saddled that country with all kinds of neglectful, corrupt misgovernment, and all sorts of unfair taxation, paying for an occupying military that the Sudanese people didn't really want. Egypt, with its exploitation and occupation of the Sudan, very much created the conditions for rebellion. Now, rebellions can take all kinds of forms. They can be patriotic and rally around the flag. They can be nationalistic and appeal to people's sense of you know, ethnic commonality. And at that point, Sudan really didn't have either of those things. There were lots of different ethnic groups in Sudan, and they didn't really think of themselves as a coherent country or unit. So there's no patriotic or nationalist banner to be rallied around. So when the inevitable rebellion came against the Ottoman Egyptians, it came in the form of something that transcended a good deal of the regional and ethnic identities in the Sudan. It came in the form of religion. And the leader that Sudan rallied around was a man named Muhammad Ahmad bin Abd Allah, who I am going to call Muhammad Ahmad in this podcast. And he was a religious ascetic figure, uh, supposedly in the style of many, many other religious ascetics before him. He spent quite a lot of time living in a desert cave, doing the whole solitary prayer and meditation thing. Uh, he eventually promoted himself as the Mahdi, or expected one, a prophesied Muslim religious figure. Now, this idea of the Mahdi, it's complicated, and it is not the same thing necessarily as calling yourself the Messiah or the Second Coming or anything like that. And I talked a bit about the Mahdi back in episode 16, the Siege of the Grand Mosque, but what I want to re-emphasize here is that it's hard to generalize about. The idea of the Mahdi does not come from the Quran itself, but from the Hadith, which are, purportedly, other different sayings of Muhammad that were recorded later. And the nature of the Hadith and of the Mahdi, they're not something that all Muslims agree on or necessarily believe in, and they are the subject of a fair amount of debate within the Muslim world. 
But for our purposes here, what is important is that in the face of oppression and excessive taxation and military occupation by Ottoman Egypt, Muhammad Ahmad is styling himself as a uniting, charismatic, prophesied chosen one, a savior figure. And obviously that vision is going to be appealing to a lot of people who are suffering under foreign rule. And I don't think that Muhammad Ahmad is the one who causes the revolt in the Sudan. I think the Ottoman Egyptians caused the revolt in the Sudan by their misgovernment. A revolt was going to come. I think Muhammad Ahmad was just in the right place at the right time to be the particular charismatic religious figure that a lot of the population latched onto and found appealing. So conditions, I think, chose him, not the other way around. Uh, one of the best-known summations for the Mahdi revolt uh, comes from a guy called Charles Gordon, who is going to be extremely important to our episode today. In fact, he's kind of the main character of our episode today. He was a British colonel, whom you might remember as a leader of the so-called ever-victorious army that put down the Taiping Rebellion back in episode 29 and 30. Uh, that guy, sometimes called Chinese Gordon. After that, Gordon became Britain's man in Sudan, and this is what he said about the revolt in an interview with the Pall Mall Gazette on January 9th, 1884. He said, quote, Oppression begat discontent. Discontent necessitated an increase of the armed force at the disposal of the authorities. This increase of the army force involved an increase of expenditure, which again was attempted to be met by increasing taxation, and that still further increased the discontent. And so things went on in a dismal circle until they culminated, after repeated deficits, in a disastrous rebellion. That the people were justified in rebelling, nobody who knows the treatment to which they were subjected will attempt to deny. Their cries were absolutely unheeded at Cairo. In despair, they had recourse to the only method by which they could make their wrongs known. They rallied around the Mahdi, who exhorted them to revolt against the Turkish yoke. I am convinced that it is an entire mistake to regard the Mahdi as in any sense a religious leader. He personifies popular discontent. All the Sudanese are potential Mahdis. The movement is not religious, but an outbreak of despair. Unquote. So again, Gordon is saying that because the Ottoman Egyptians are saddling the Sudanese with taxation and are stationing foreign troops in their country, of course you're going to get a rebellion on your hands, and it just so happens to be religious. And almost everything I've read about this has emphasized that the modest revolt probably had more to do with malfeasance and misgovernment on the part of Cairo than any latent religious conservatism on the part of the Sudanese populace. I think Gordon is right on that religion is the medium of rebellion rather than the cause of it. Regardless of the cause of the rebellion, Cairo was not pleased with the idea of a charismatic, messianic religious leader gaining popularity, acclaim, land, resources, and political power. This was the beginnings of a religious revolution, and the Ottoman Egyptians they could not tolerate that. The Cairo government wanted this Mahdi dead or captured. So they told various military units to go hunt for him. And if any of them found him and brought him back, they would reap a significant reward. The modest forces had three notable victories over the Ottoman Egyptians. And the first would be kind of comedic, had actual humans not died in the action. Uh, two Egyptian companies uh, were hunting Muhammad Ahmad and his men, and they thought that they had found the camp, 
and instead of finding their quarry, they found each other. They opened fire on each other and succumbed to friendly fire. In another instance, Egyptian troops, they thought that the Sudanese would be easy pickings. Uh, they neglected to place sentries at night while they were searching for the Mahdi, and the Sudanese launched a nighttime sneak attack and defeated them. In still another instance, there was a British general named Hicks who had converted to Islam, and he chased Muhammad Ahmad around for weeks. The Sudanese cut off Hicks's supply lines, fell upon his men, and killed him. With these and other victories, the Mahdist state began to take shape in Sudan. Muhammad Ahmad, he was winning. He was successfully rallying the native Sudanese to his cause, and they were enthusiastically cutting down the Ottoman Egyptians who had vexed them for so long. Muhammad Ahmad then starts consolidating power and called for a series of political and social changes that I think might sound familiar to anyone who has looked at popular religiously conservative movements. Uh, Muhammad Ahmad, he preached that Sudan needed to return to abandoned original Islamic principles. The government in Cairo, it was said, was decadent and corrupt, and he was probably right. They probably were decadent, and they certainly were corrupt. Not that there's anything wrong with being decadent. Uh, Muhammad Ahmad, though, he preached the banning of traditional vices like alcohol, tobacco, and non-religious music all of which were being tolerated way up in the decadent, more urban north, and also the strict segregation of genders, which included secluding women, and in general, the population of Sudan, he said, should devote themselves to a kind of religiously pure version of Islam. And I think that in that kind of revolutionary atmosphere, this is just one more thing that a revolutionary movement can do to differentiate themselves from the people that they are fighting. So, Charles Gordon, whom I mentioned earlier, he was sent in to coordinate the evacuation of Egyptians and other foreigners from the country. The Egyptian government, they actually asked for this British guy to come in and oversee the evacuation. He had been Britain's man in Sudan for years. He was also known for successfully leading that ever-victorious army back in China. And they also didn't think that the Sudanese would actually attack a third party. They didn't think that the modest forces would actually infuriate a world superpower like Great Britain by attacking a British commander. So Gordon comes in. Uh, he attempted first to come to terms with Muhammad Ahmad by recognizing his authority over Kordofan, the region of Sudan that the modest forces had already secured. Um, as a gesture of goodwill, Gordon sent him a red robe and a tarbouche, garb that were symbols of royal authority, and he offered to recognize Muhammad Ahmad as sultan of his particular section of Sudan. When faced with the offer of recognition and kingly sovereignty, though, this is what Ahmad said in a letter to Gordon, quote, Know that I am the expected Mahdi, the successor of the Apostle of God. Thus I have no need of the sultanate, nor the kingdom of Kordofan, or elsewhere, nor the wealth of this world and its vanity. I am but the slave of God. Unquote. I don't know about you, but if I'd been presented with authority, wealth, my own country, and a cool hat, uh, I would have taken it. Muhammad Ahmad did not, which I think points maybe to his religious sincerity. Uh, when you're examining characters like this, my first impulse is to think that they are charlatans, crazy people, cynical or opportunistic. When I think of somebody who styles themselves as a religiously prophesized character, I think of someone like David Koresh, 
or Hong Xiuquan of the Taiping Rebellion. Either they are deranged, like Koresh, or egomaniacs like Hong, who preached godliness but lived themselves in private, worldly splendor. Muhammad Ahmad does not appear to be like that. The impression I've gotten is that he really believed his own hype, and when presented with the offer of worldly authority and splendor, said, nah. Gordon, by the way, might have been just as ideological and religious as Muhammad Ahmad was. He was extraordinarily devout, apparently read his Bible on a regular basis, and more than a few historians have tried to be armchair psychologists and mused about whether or not Gordon's godliness was perhaps a way in which he suppressed his own homosexuality. He was also prone to flights of religious fancy and fervor. For instance, Gordon thought that he located the Garden of Eden on an island near Mauritius. This supposed discovery of his was greeted with some skepticism. So we're talking about two fairly eccentric guys here, but I digress. Gordon did not have an easy time negotiating with the Mahdi, nor did he have an easy time leading the Egyptian forces. Uh, he was known, actually, for being a fairly difficult and obstinate guy and a hard man to deal with, and he didn't get along with either his Ottoman Egyptian or British superiors. One of the chroniclers of the Mahdist War was Winston Churchill, who in his book The River War wrote the following about Gordon and his frustrated attempts to requisition resources from his superiors. Quote, he had requested Turkish troops. Turkish troops were refused. He had asked for Mohammedan regiments from India. The government regretted their inability to comply. He asked for a firman from the Sultan to strengthen his position. It was peremptorily refused. He proposed to go south in his steamers to Equatoria. The government forbade him to proceed beyond Khartoum. He asked that 200 British troops might be sent to Berber. He was refused. He begged that a few might be sent to Aswan. None were sent. He proposed to visit the Mahdi himself and try to arrange matters with him personally. Perhaps he recognized a kindred spirit. The government in this case very naturally forbade him. Unquote. By the way, another uh, side note, Winston Churchill, very important historical figure, very compelling writer. Uh, I also take him with a gigantic grain of salt, given that he does very much have that old colonial British white man's burden type worldview. And, oh my God, reading Churchill's book about Africa filled with racism. It was really uncomfortable, but I got through it. I got through it for you, gentle listener. Anyway, Gordon. He could not expect help or resources from his superiors, and he was dug in at Khartoum, the main center of Egyptian presence in Sudan. That city had 27,000 Egyptian civilians and 7,000 soldiers, and somehow Gordon would have to get them out of the country. And again, the hope from the Ottoman Egyptian government was that the rebellious modest forces they would not risk attacking a British officer. They wouldn't provoke a world power, and they were totally wrong. The modest forces, they encircled the capital and laid siege to Gordon and the Egyptians and the other foreigners in Khartoum. And it was only after things were truly desperate for a while that the British government, after a lot of debate in the House of Commons, finally, finally, finally decided to send Gordon some aid. They organized an expedition into the Sudan to get him and the Egyptians out of Khartoum. But it would take some time for that expedition to actually get together and reach Khartoum. In the meantime, this is how Churchill described things inside the capital during the siege. Quote, 
The money to pay the troops was exhausted. He issued notes, signing them with his own name. The citizens groaned under the triple scourge of scarcity, disease, and war. He ordered the bands to play merrily and discharge rockets. It was said that they were abandoned, that help would never come, that the expedition was a myth, the lie of a general who was disavowed by his government. Forthwith, he placarded the walls with news of victories and the advance of a triumphant British army, or hired all the best houses by the river's bank for accommodations of the officers of the relieving force. A dervish shell crashed through his palace. He ordered the date of its arrival to be described upon the whole. For those who served him faithfully, he struck medals and presented them with pomp and circumstance. Others, less laudable, he shot, and by all these means and expedients, the defense of the city was prolonged through the summer, autumn, and winter of 1884 and on into the year 1885. Cholera, starvation, they all took its toll on the city, and after 313 days of siege, the modest troops, they broke through Khartoum's walls and took the city. In January of 1885, Gordon and thousands of Egyptian soldiers that had been in the city with him, they were killed in the fighting. Gordon's fate at this point has been fairly well romanticized and mythologized. A lot of sources, British sources, who have a vested interest in making this look all very desperate and romantic, talk about how he was at the top of a flight of stairs, how he was fighting off several men by himself. Eventually, he was overwhelmed and stabbed through the chest with a spear, but nevertheless, fighting with his last breath. I find that a bit hard to believe, but that's the story. Gordon's head was cut off from his dead body, and it was presented as a trophy to Muhammad Ahmad. The Mahdi, he was furious at his adversary's body, had been treated in such a disrespectful manner, and he rejected the gruesome gift. By the time the British forces arrived at Khartoum, it was too late. The siege was over. The Sudanese rebels had won. Sudan was free of the Ottoman-Egyptian yoke, and soon after that it would forge a new, religiously-infused state. The life of Mahdist Sudan would not be a peaceful one. The old corruption of the Ottoman-Egyptian occupation would be replaced with new, proto-totalitarian religious laws and regulations. And, next week, the new country will go to war with one of the oldest nation-states in the world, and dive into a bloody conflict with neighboring Ethiopia. That's next week on Interesting Times. This show is 100% listener-supported. If you like the show and want to sign up for a regular donation, and I think you should do that, go to interestingtimespodcast.com and show your support. I love hearing what you guys have to say. Uh, go on Facebook, facebook.com slash interestingtimeswithjoestreckert. Or even better than that, go on iTunes, leave a rating and a review, and tell me what you think of the show. I'm on Twitter, at Joe Streckert, on Tumblr, joestreckert.tumblr.com. Thank you very much for listening, and next week, it's Sudan versus Ethiopia. Talk to you then. Bye.